where we talk about your favorite indie movies and genre television shows. My name's Joseph, and this is my co-host... Lydia! Hey, hi. How are you? Hola, como estas? Ça va bien. Different languages, but I appreciate you bringing the energy. <laughs> I was like, guten tag. I'm like, I actually don't know what the response for that normally is in German, which is terrible for the amount of time I've studied German. Okay. Oh my god, fun fact. This is, okay, I'm jumping into media way too soon. We don't actually have to talk about this movie because it's not very good. But I watched a movie called Endings uh, Endings Beginnings with Jamie Dornan, Sebastian Stan, and Shalane Ooh, Woodley. Jamie Dornan. Yes. And Shalane Woodley, who I mostly find aggravating. She's from the Divergent series, but it was fine. Whatever. It was a love triangle. Mm, yeah, she's not my favorite. Yeah, I don't love her either. But it was like... Sexy, passionate, love triangle, stable guy versus, like, passionate, sexual guy. Mm -hmm. Who, of course, happened to be friends, whatever. Um, And the movie was, like, average. It was fine. But they do this. You know that that thing that movies do where if the characters are texting, instead of just, like, showing you the phone screen, they'll pop the, the message, like, in font up on the screen? Yep. I think that was House of Cards. Yeah, a lot of movies and TV shows use that. So anyway, Endings Beginnings does that as well. And I'm, I watched this movie on a less than above board streaming service. Okay. Um, <laughs> and the, the movie's American. It's all American actors other than Jamie Dornan, obviously. Um, and the whole thing's in English. But for whatever reason, the version I was streaming, the fucking text messages were German. And there was there was no other version. And I wanted to watch the movie. So I was like, I'm just going to make it work. I'll translate on the fly. There were so many texts. So it was like constant. But I've realized that because I went to school for English and the amount of shit that my stupid intro like to uh, classic literature professor made us read in middle English, like everything was fucking middle English. I can actually understand half the German text messages in text. Like I, if you spoke German to me, I'd have, I wouldn't have a prayer, but because of like the language is close enough. I'm like, Oh my God, I, I get some of this. So I only had to translate about half of it. And I was very impressed with myself. (laughs) That is so funny. I love that. (laughs) Yeah. So you know, this is a coming at you from an apocalyptic tone things, but we're just going to ignore all that before. No, let's not ignore it. Let's talk about how I'm like going full Unabomber, like hermiting hard. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> not full Unabomber. I realized what the implications of full Unabomber was. Not full Unabomber. <laughs> just the hermit part where he lived just, in the woods. Just the cute part. Not cute. Just cute Unabomber. <laughs> There's nothing good about what I said. I take back all of it. This didn't happen. <laughs> Cut it. Cut all of that. My energy is really um, chaotic right now. Well, you you know, that's a guaranteed stay in then. Fuck. <laughs> yeah, chaotic energy. That's going to be a, a, theme. a theme of the movie we watched. Yeah. But uh, chaotic energy in Ontario as well. Or the opposite, as in very well-ordered 
hell uh, in it's not in, well uh, ordered don't say it's well ordered no. he's rolled back and like increased As in we're all st- stuck in quarantine yeah but yeah um our government has really effed up and unlike most of the rest of the world we are entering one of the worst phases of yeah. the pandemic we've ever had actually it is the worst no, phase yeah. that we've ever had yeah like i mean which most of us disagree with the entire time but is also understandable the entire time through this pandemic we've never really like we've done lockdowns quote unquote and shutdowns and whatever fucking name they want to call it but we've never had hard restrictions so now that we're like over a year in the pandemic putting in place what is like supposedly hard restrictions feels like very lackluster but also annoyingly restrictive so like instead of just everything being shut down you can't go to any stores like you can only do curbside and delivery the only stores you can go to are groceries instead of doing that which i think most people would be like at least moderately understandable about because it's consistent he's closing down things like public parks and like golfing and just like general outdoor activity where it's really easy to social distance and it's like okay i mean i can go to fucking walmart with 75 of my closest friends but we can't like sit 15 feet apart in a public park yeah i mean there's yeah there's problems Mm -hmm. but yeah that's sad and i don't necessarily want to (laughs) keep keep thinking about that anymore i've been telling like everyone around me after we talk 30 minutes about it i'm like i'm not i'm no longer discussing the hell that is our i love it you're like after we've talked about it for 30 minutes we've talked about it for like three other things in my life have been terrible, but we're not going <laughs> to discuss those either. But, you know, eventually things will get better. That's the that's the plan. Yeah. There'll be more public announcements about uh, <laughs> the bad things in my life later. I love that phrase, things will get better, because it's just like such the thing that every parent tells you when you're being mercilessly bullied at like 12. Yep. And it's like, do they, though? Because I'm 30 now and it's not that much better. Like, I'm not being bullied, but, you know, everything else is shit. Yeah, it's more you have better coping mechanisms do I, to deal with do the I, same amount of shit or more. Do I have better coping mechanisms? I mean, I'm not drinking, so I guess that's good. Look, I can't solve your life for you, Lydia. This is I can't solve my life for me. I have no expectations for anyone else to be able to do it. Yes, we haven't recorded in a long time. So long. So we have quite... I was going to try to say some cool word, but and then it's that then collection. What's backlog? Confe- not confederacy. Definitely that's not, not that. For. I mean, if you do, that's that's all you. No, no, no. It's all a, you. It's a word that means like a cacophony, like a whole bunch of different oh, stuff. Cacophony but Cacophony is just a lot of noise, which I don't think yeah. is wrong. Contextually weird, but technically not incorrect. Yeah, we watched uh, a lot of stuff. Conglomerate. Also not the best word here. Doesn't totally work. <laughs> one one day we'll figure it out. <laughs> I actually even had a, I had one week where I was feeling particularly down, and I watched like a movie a day with with my mom. Actually, it was quite love nice, that. and she was very happy to to watch them with me. I love your mom. So some of those might come up. I know, and I love your parents. Oh my god, yeah. we're made for each other. Yes, I know. Oh my god, I was having a conversation with my mom, and my mom is just like, so like, does Joseph like us? We like having him over, but like I can never, I'm never 100% sure if he likes us. And I'm like, Joseph loves you guys. He wouldn't come over if he didn't. And she's just like, oh, good. I'm so glad. <laughs> yep. So funny. I mean, it's true, though. I know. It's true, though. Get them to listen to the podcast and they'll, they'll cry. Absolutely not. 
Absolutely <laughs> fucking not. There isn't a world in which. No, God, no. The side of yourself. No. I wouldn't mind if my parents heard it. Your parents can hear me. I mean, they'll probably never want me over again, but they, that's fine. No, I mean for myself. I'm I'm not. I'm not worried that my parents. Yeah, but you don't constantly bring up your depression and like brush with borderline no. functional alcoholism in your twenties. That's me. I don't really need my Moving my on. parents might know, but they don't need like abundant levels of confirmation about like my serious problems no. that I'm not addressing. I think this episode is going to be inevitably dark. We seem to be just just jumping down these pitfalls every <laughs> second we get. We're in a place. It's not a good place, but it is a place. And we're there. Remember how the good place was actually the bad place? Exactly. Yeah. I felt so stable and confident in everything I was doing. And now I feel like shit and can't leave my own apartment. So that feels very real to me right yes. now. We were talking, though, that once things do reopen, we'd love if all the independent theaters haven't been destroyed by the pandemic. Oh, God. I mean, it's something we talked about that so many independent businesses are going to business. And not, I'm not necessarily fine with other types of businesses going out of business, but I'm just like, I don't personally care that much. You know, some fast food restaurant goes down, another one's going to take it. Yes. But all of these independent things, it's like they have a history. They have a community feeling. Oh, my God. And so many of them are hit so hard. My favorite independent coffee shop, the one that serves like fancy whiskey and fancy oh, no. coffee. They're gone. Oh my god! Yeah, I I went by them the other day. Your city in particular has so many amazing independent spaces, and for the theaters, uh, yeah, I'd love it if we could get to go see them when uh, things reopen. Hundred percent. I'd also love it if we could get together with at least one friend who drives, since neither of us have cars, and go to the drive-in. I feel like that would be super fun. Ooh, that would be fun, right? Yeah, some pop, some fresh popcorn. Definite vibes. Definite vibe. Okay. Um, I'll throw in, let's, I'm trying to lighten the mood. So yeah, what let's I, jump I, into I, it. I'm betting you watched it too. Yeah. I'm betting you watched this one too. Did you see Love and Monsters? Yes. We watched yeah. that together. That was us together. Oh my God. I'm so, you know, this okay. was a week ago. I apologize. I always forget who I watch stuff with. It's such a bad habit of mine. And I always feel bad when it actually crops up, but <laughs> This was what we watched when we decided we were yes. ready to start recording again. Yeah. Um, so you have seen it. Yes, I have. But yes. Um, so the vibes are vibing right now. We're yeah. in, we're getting into the mood. God, this podcast, this podcast is absolutely going to sound like we both snorted a shitload of Adderall. Like that's where we're at right now. Love and Monsters. We both liked it. Yes, we do. do. you care to expand on your thesis? Oh my God. <laughs> I'm just trying to get the conversation started. <laughs> <laughs> Look, this is way more fun already than the last time we tried to record and we're both like in a horrible headspace. So just That's let true. this happen. Chaos reigns. Enlightenment. Yes. Um, so Love and Monsters. It's very charming. I really did enjoy it. Um... Stars Dylan O'Brien in the main role, who I adore. So cute. So cute. So charming. I love him and everything. And Michael Rooker, which unexpected. I love seeing him in things. He's a great voice. It's a great like vibe. Um, but yeah, it, it it was the it was the big drop last week yeah. on uh, Netflix. I think it stayed in the number one slot for quite a while, but that's because Netflix isn't producing anything well yeah netflix isn't bringing out a ton 
Also, people are very up on the post-apocalyptic, mid-apocalyptic vibes, mm-hmm. but like the charming, cute version of the apocalypse, not the like yeah. horrible, depressing version of the apocalypse. Like nobody's wanting Orwell's 1984 right now, and we're all like vibing on weird, yes, eclectic neons. So that was very on brand. And it's just funny. It's cute and it's charming. It's a good middle space between like, I think it's like advertised like as a kid or at least family friendly movie, which I think is actually true. Yes. It's, yeah. But it actually has enough content for 30 depressed 30 year old millennials. Yeah, 100%. Enjoy. Yeah. It's, it's. So like, you know, great job. It's definitely like bubblegummy, but not in a way that's aggravating. I would liken it to something like, do you remember that movie with David Arquette, Eight Legged Freaks? Remember how popular that was when we were young? It gives me that vibe. You know what I mean? Where it's like. Yeah, very similar. Yeah. An adult audience can totally enjoy it. Definitely funny, stupid horror comedy, but it's great for like the whole family. I would say this is a little lighter than Eight-Legged Freaks, but otherwise it gives me a similar feel, especially with the bug thing. Yeah, and I think I think the way they uh, uh, we were saying this during the movie, but it was like the way they structured it too was just like they didn't mess up the vibe. Is yeah. how I'd say it. Like they they really made each plot point or how things flow. Like you're like because I as I was super anxious during the movie. I'm like if they move towards this plot or this plot, I'm like I'm out. I don't want the vibe. I, you know, they so they did it. They did a very good emotional check yeah i will say like it is 100 percent super formulaic like yes. it's it's gonna feel like any sort of young adult movie that you've seen but i don't think there's anything wrong with that like it does ex- it follows the formula exactly but it does it perfectly it does it in a way that's engaging and fun and overall like pretty enjoyable it's just it's it's not gonna like blow the doors off it's not gonna elevate the genre in any like real way but you're gonna enjoy yourself Absolutely. I don't know much more I want to say about it, but yeah. it's just, it gets my recommendation for a fun, feel good movie. Very comfort movie. Like I can see myself returning to this if I'm having a bad day mm. and I just need something like consistent, fun, and very easy. Do you have any other recommendations? Yeah, I've been watching a ton of stuff that a lot of it shares common themes. <laughs> mm. Um. I don't know how much I want to get into that, but let's see. How depressing do we want to be with my recommend? Oh, you know what's fun? I rewatched. Do you remember Splice? Yes. But is it good? No. Um, so Splice came out years ago with Adrian Brody and Sarah Pauly. Super weird casting. Uh, I see. I see. Yes. Super weird casting. Sarah Pauly, Canadian actress and director. But it's like... <laughs> it's a sci-fi movie and it definitely came out in like the mid two thousands. And it came out around that time when everybody was talking about like stem cell research and Mm -hmm. geneticism and cloning and all of that kind of shit. And that's very much what the horror aspect is in this sort of pseudo sci-fi body horror film. Yeah. There are elements of the vibe it creates that I can liken to something like Ex Machina. Is it even close to the quality of Ex Machina? Absolutely fucking not. It's atrocious. It's basically Frankenstein, but weirdly sexualized. But it does dren 
the monster character does give me similar kind of vibes. Um, the other thing I would liken it to is Species from the early 90s, which is a very mm-hmm. weird psychosexual alien movie. So if you mashed like the worst parts of that together and then cast Adrian Brody in it, you pretty much got Splice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's a pretty accurate description of this weird bad movie. And I think for me, the weirdest thing about it is is not that it created sexual tension, but that it used something that was done to a much better effect in Jurassic Park. The fact that there are certain types of reptiles, right. specifically frogs, that can spontaneously change gender. Oh. Yeah. So <laughs> Jurassic Park does this where all of the dinosaurs are female and then they start spontaneously, some of them changing gender so that they can breed Mm. in splice. They do the same kind of trick where they use frog DNA to create this amalgamation of species. So they can sort of create this weird genetic like chimera. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, it also spontaneously changes gender and it's, it is literally no discernible reason it's not for mating. It's for this weird uh, psychosexual domination fantasy that's happening right. through the movie. Oh my God. So there's the alien thing and Adrian Brody get it on. And I'm like, okay, mm-hmm. it's trying to mate and breed. Totally makes sense. It's a female thing, weird monster. He's a dude. I get it. And then for absolutely no discernible reason, it metamorphosizes into a man. Oh, okay. I'm watching the movie. Still has very effeminate features, but is very bulky and muscular. It's strange. And then it rapes Sarah Polly. And you're just like, I. Oh. Okay. Not, not a fan of that. I was hoping for the, you know, Adrian Brody discovering things about himself. No. Angle, but no, we're not going to get that. No, it, it sticks with the, with the line of heteronormativity pretty clearly. Um, aside from the spontaneous gender t- changing, it's, mm-hmm. you know, the, the monster is still straight for no reason. Um, and then and then the movie. Do you care if I spoil this movie that came out in like 2008? No, go ahead. Sarah Polly gets pregnant and mm-hmm. then signs a waiver with the scientific research facility she was working with to carry the child thing to term so they can study it and that's the end of the movie and i'm like i don't understand the message here but it's it feels no. anti-science in a way that's both confusing yeah. and sexual i feel like that being anti-science is the least of its worries i feel like it's just horrible on so many levels mm-hmm. of thematic like no no thank you yeah I'm, I'm definitely not recommending it uh if you've never seen it it's a wild ride but it's bad like it's objectively not good as you do know, though, I do love Adrian Brody. I do as so well. That's always good. Um, although, I guess that's this is soiling his sort of career. Yeah, that's what's soiling his career. Not like working with Roman Polanski and Woody Allen. Well, and yeah. Dating Harvey that's, Weinstein's wife. Although he, that's not her fault, I guess. His, yeah, his it's When you put it that way, his career is really effed up. He's truly like muse boy or whatever of these horrible men. Yeah. He's probably most famous for that. Well, and he's also like a pseudo method actor. Like when he did The Pianist, Mm. he 
dumped his girlfriend and moved out of his apartment so he could get into the mind of a Jewish man during the Holocaust. And I'm like, I feel like that's the bare minimum. You know, like, oh, I moved out of my swanky apartment into a slightly less swanky apartment and dumped my girlfriend. That's really not like you're not digging very deep into the emotional mindset of somebody who survived a genocide. You're going very surface level. Yeah. Ugh. But yeah, he's got very like Jim Carrey method actor vibes where he just seems like it's more an excuse to be a douchebag than it is to like actually get an authentic performance. I still love him in many things, but he does seem like he'd be a piece of shit in person. Oh, yeah, that's it's definitely a messy part of the history. I mean, I think we were talking about this, too, but even just looking at like Woody Allen's, he's still making movies like on a yearly basis. It's so like, yeah, so it's Roman Polanski. Well, yeah, that's even more uh, unbelievable. Roman Polanski literally went to jail for statutory rape and then fled the United States Never to return, because if he does, he will immediately be arrested for statutory rape, is still making movies, at least as as recent as like 2016, with big name Hollywood actors, and married at at the age of 52, I think, he married a 19-year-old woman. Hmm. Married her. And the odds of them only getting together when she was 19 feel very minimal to me. You know? So I'm like... Okay, so you started dating her when she was probably at least 17. And maybe that was legal in France. I don't know. I don't know what their age of consent is, but you're a 52-year-old man and you're choosing to date a teenager. That says a lot about you as a person. So it sounds like we're not going to get the good vibes. We're not going to find our way out of the pit of despair. Well, it was funny, but until I started dissecting Adrian Brody. Well, the splice thing was fun. I was very very on there. And a lot of comedic energy happening. Mm. I think people will laugh until the pedophilia stuff, which comes up a lot on this podcast. Yes, I do. Okay. One last attempt to keep things up and positive before everything else on my list being sad too. Give it to me. Give me some humor. Well, you know, the one that I watched all of when I was in a really depressed phase and that you just started is Younger. Yes. Which is a very fun Nice show. There's no way it can go bad. Right, Lydia? I wasn't going to talk about it because this is super embarrassing. Because I texted you like yesterday saying I started it at like eight in the morning. And yeah. I am on season four now. Oh my God. <laughs> I know. I just put it on in the background while I'm working and I just like let it go. Because you don't have to. Yeah. I mean, it is a very easygoing show. Yeah. It's not like cerebral. I don't have to focus on it so it's just like it's just non-stop playing except when i have meetings then i turn it off and yeah so it is hillary duff love uh but it stars sutton foster as the main character and a whole bunch of other people so debbie mazer uh miriam shore who i actually really love in this is diana trout the so good agency man no marketing manager of head of marketing for empirical and then the ultra-hot Nico Totorella, who plays Josh, who is the hottest fantasy... Hot hipster tattoo artist. Also hot Peter Herman, who plays Charles Brooks, the head of the publishing company. Also hot, but in a head much more refined way. Very different way. Yeah. yeah. So the show just plays this fantasy. I love the premise of the show, but it's so bad in a certain way. 4 year old woman has 
her daughter leaves the nest and she is feeling like, well, I, I, oh, and she's getting divorced. And she's bankrupt. Right. And bankrupt. So what's next steps in life, right? And she used to be in publishing. That was her dream before she had a kid. So she has a 15 year gap in her resume, but she's like, let's try it out again. But everyone's ageist and she can't get the job. She goes to a bar to commiserate with her awesome lesbian friend, Maggie. They're commiserating and she's sad about the divorce, sad about lamenting the fact that she can't get a job in this industry that she loves. And this 26-year-old hot tattoo artist checks her out across the bar and the story begins where she says, why not pretend to be 26 with him? And why not pretend to be 26 to get the job? Oh, and Hilary Duff is another editor alongside her in the thing. And she is awesome. Yeah, she's really good. She does give very much like grown up Lizzie McGuire vibes sometimes. And honestly, Mm -hmm. I'm right there for it. I love it. It's one of those shows, too, where like the outfits of people are like, you know, just meant to be charming and fun to watch all the time. Like, it's just such a good, fun fantasy to watch. Great comfort watch. So have you you've been liking it? Yeah, I've been really enjoying it. Um, I gave you a mini play-by-play yesterday while I was watching. Yes. <laughs> uh, but no, I mean, it's it's comforting and it's entertaining. And there, even though it's publishing, because so much of it is about like marketing and, and copywriting and editing and stuff, there's a lot of it that I can relate to, not the pretending Absolutely. to be 26 thing, but the actual work environment. It is an overblown version of that like middle ground between corporate and, and art because that's really like publishing, marketing, like those kinds of jobs are sort of like just right in the in the in-between space. Mm-hmm. And it's a much more fun, dynamic, exciting version of that. But there's a vibe to it that is, feels very relatable to what I do in my life. So I really, I don't know, I'm really enjoying it. It's very, the charm works very well on me. I really love the characters. Um, Maggie is amazing. Mm-hmm. If like, I I love that now that I'm into season four, she's in it more and more. Like, I feel like the first two seasons, Maggie wasn't as big of a character. And then when you get into season three and four, you get a lot more storylines revolving around her and what she's doing Mm -hmm. and her relationship with Sutton Foster's character, her relationship with like Josh and Lauren and all of these different people that she's met through Liza. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think each character gets really good story. Like, they construct the storylines well, but the big thing about the show is it's it's playing into a fantasy. The fantasy is, as a four-year-old woman, she can just, she can still have it all. Yeah. Right? Even though she's in danger of bad revelations coming out all the time, somehow she's managing to balance her relationship with her daughter, her uh, getting to live in, like, a Soho apartment with her lesbian best friend, uh, publishing, like, being able to become, you know, publisher, one of these dream jobs... And of course, getting to date a super hot 26-year-old, which then even evolves into more complex relationship yep. dynamics, which are also very fantastical and fun. So, I mean, there isn't that much more to say about it. It's just, you know, if that's a vibe you want to do, it, the show does it super well. Yeah, it's very, it's very good. And I like, I there's something about, like, even though it's about you know, this 40 year old woman having to lie about her age to get into the industry because it's ageist and it's sexist and et cetera. There's something about the way they portray so many of these characters that the show itself, even though it's charming and, and very chill, it doesn't, 
it has somewhat of a message behind it that's kind of interesting. Like it is critiquing these sorts of industry, like the standard problems that the industries have. And it doesn't feel, even though it's bubbly and cutesy, it doesn't feel anti-feminist. You know what I mean? It doesn't feel like it's dragging women or it's saying like, oh, you can't possibly be a mom and have a career and like you're a waste after 15 years without a job and you have to pretend to be young. It doesn't feel that way because you meet these characters who are child free by choice. You meet characters who have kids and have like had their career the whole time. You make pe- you meet people who transitioned in- into different types of careers so they can keep doing what they love while being a stay at home mom. Like there's, there's a lot of interesting things that she learns about herself and that she like, she's realizing she wasn't limited by her choices. She limited herself in a lot of ways and she stagnated herself in a lot of ways, but it didn't have to be like this. And I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. Younger really helped me through like just something to like have on for like, and just help me like keep my mind off certain things and, and made me feel optimistic and happy about life sort of stuff at, at that, uh, that time I was watching it, which is a few weeks ago now. I did binge watch. I mean, I guess I'll mention it now, but I, I've been, or re, it was a rewatch, but I binge watched another show that I love called um, Please Like Me about an Australian comedy about a gay guy and his life. That show though is, it is brilliant. One of my fav- favorite shows for sure, but it really mixes happy comedy moments with like really dark stuff about life in an, in, in an interesting way. And it ends like this is the, it, I knew how it ended obviously because I'd finished it before, but I was dreading the ending because it leaves you in such a like, there's so much hope and so much good things happening in his life in the middle seasons, but it actually ends ends with this like, y- that your life can still spiral out of control or change, uh, change in a beat. And mm. that, it's a very hard message because it's still hopeful in the end, but it's, his life is dragged back down, which really spoke to me in this moment in my life. Um, but also that's where it ends, right? So you don't get to see him make up for things again. Right. Which is pretty disturbing in a way. But yeah, those were my two big, like, spent a ton of time watching cover watches during these times. And, you know, I need more of them during this, uh, during these thousands of hours just at home. And Joseph and I were talking about this earlier, but I have a tendency to especially when I'm in like not the best place in my life or I'm very anxious or I'm very stressed. I hyperfixate on things. It's just what I've always done. So I'll watch a TV show or I'll watch a movie and I'll hyperfixate on one of the characters or one of the actors in it. And then I'll need to watch basically anything that's available on streaming that has that one person in it. And I've, I've done this for years. I've done this since I was probably a teenager. So the past couple of weeks since we've been off recording, I have gone through probably three major binges of three separate actors Mm. where I've just watched as much of their catalog as possible. One was Adrian Brody because I watched that terrible Predators movie that he was in with my mother. My mom wanted to watch Predators. So I watched pretty much everything that was available for him. The other was Sebastian Stan because I've been watching the Winter Soldier, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Mm-hmm. So I watched basically everything that's available for him. And then finally was Dylan O'Brien because we watched Love and Monsters. 
Um, and it's, it's literally just if I'm having a bad day and then I watch something and it makes me feel better, I hyper fixate on whoever the right. main character is or like whoever the funniest or most charming character is. And then I have to watch everything they're in. So that's been my like last three weeks. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, you know what? I did a comfort rewatch of a terrible, terrible show. Teen Wolf. Okay. Yeah. Which is not good, but I adore it. And uh, so. I mean, it's it's beloved. So. It's so bad. It's a, it's just objectively terrible. And I was sitting there watching it and I remembered when I first saw it, the first season being really corny looking, but very entertaining. Because it came out around the time that like Vampire Diaries was out, Pretty mm-hmm. Little Liars, like all those shows with very similar sort of pseudo dark vibes. Um, but they're really all just like sexy teen romance soap operas <laughs> the first season the production value is so low i can't believe it was on an actual television station like i get oh, that really? it's mtv but holy fuck this looked like a made for youtube series and not like <laughs> cobra kai you know like an early made for youtube yeah <laughs> and i just like so they did the transformation into the wolf thing. And right. look, I get they didn't want to go OG teen wolf Michael J. Fox, where he literally looks like the wolf boy from like the greatest showman. Like, I totally understand why they didn't want to go that way. But they basically did like Buffy vampire face, but mutton chops. Like that was the costume direction. Mm. And then like top and bottom fangs, but they still run on all fours, even though they're still a hundred percent men. I'm vaguely remembering this now. Yeah. Like they're still yeah. just dudes in, in tight t-shirts and jeans, but they're running on four legs. And I'm like, how are you doing that in skinny jeans? That alone. Impressive. You know, that's pretty good. <laughs> so I'm like, I, I don't know why I'm rewatching this. This is terrible. This is shockingly bad. And then we get into the second season. They really stepped up their game. It's still corny and like over the top, super melodramatic teen show. But the quality, I mean, they had to keep the werewolves the same because they've already introduced them. So if they change them, it would be very weird. But the like Canima, which is like the bad thing that they have to deal with that season is really fucking cool looking. There are a couple moments during fight scenes mm. where you can very clearly tell it's just a dude in a morph suit that they've sort of painted and put nails on. Um, so that's not great. But most of the time when you see it, like, that thing looks dope. Like, it's a sick monster. It's cool. You don't get a lot of, like, actual monster movies anymore, like mm. actual monster TV shows. You know, you have things like Cloverfield, which definitely has that vibe, but... It's not, it's not as common. There was some stuff in, in Stranger Things, but it wasn't very good. Actually, that was one of the things that people said. Yeah. And Demi Gorgon was like not the greatest. No, it wasn't. So it was, it was cool. Even though this is a low production value, corny team show, you're getting these monsters at least occasionally that are actually awesome, that are really cool to Mm -hmm. see on screen. Um, And they put a lot of effort in. So like, yeah, the writing's not great, but. If you like, like, corny, you know, 60s monster movies, it's a good vibe for that. It's really fun. Yeah. 
Nice. And of course, you know, Dylan O'Brien, precious as always. <laughs> did you have uh, more Dylan O'Briens you want you want to talk about or did, could I go? You can go unless you want to hear about my rewatch of the Maze Runner series. I well, I mean, we, we, <laughs> we can we can either head back to that or things. I think this will tie in in an interesting way. But so we never even mentioned what movie we're going to watch, but it's in the title. So, you know, yeah. what's going on. Learn, like you can read. Or maybe you can't, and I've been super insensitive. I'm sorry. But when I watched, and you had mentioned in a previous uh, episode, but I thought will connect up nicely due to the Gyllenhaal siblings. Oh, right. Is Enemy. You told me you were going to talk about this like twice, and I already forgot. <laughs> 2013's Enemy, a Canadian indie movie, early career of Denis Villeneuve, who has directed Arrival, Blade Runner 2049, Sicario, and the new Dune movie coming out. Uh, who I love. It was based on a novel called The Double by Jose Sacramage, something like this. Nailed it. And it's, yeah, thank you. <laughs> I'm sure I got it exactly right. And it's a very, it's a very surreal psychological thriller. And so that's sort of interesting thing for us to talk about. And it stars Jake Gyllenhaal as both main characters. Yes. Jake Gyllenhaal, who... The reason I saw Enemy was because I had a hyperfixation yes. moment and binge watched his entire catalog, one of which was Enemy. <laughs> um, and also stars Melanie Laurent and Sarah Gadon. Yeah, interesting. I found it as an interesting um, production thing. It was apparently a joint venture be- with Canada and Spain. So very fascinating, like uh, connection of people and the setting stuff the amount of toronto vibes oh and mississauga vibes is it's and, and it's actually set in toronto and mississauga yes but like because of the filter that he uses on the wide shots of toronto it makes toronto look like the biggest dystopian shithole yes yes ever. very much so. like it looks like we have a constant smog alert in toronto yeah which we definitely do occasionally but not to that degree everything's green it's very depressing I loved it. <laughs> and people probably don't know, but Mississauga is like the biggest suburb of, or the biggest like other area that's part of Toronto. The GTA. But yeah, I liked the movie, but I was shocked when it ended because it leaves so many questions. Yeah. It's it's so frustrating because like, it's really hard to talk about and review this movie without completely spoiling it. Yeah. So, like, I don't know how much spoiler territory we're going to get into, but if you do think you're going to want to watch Enemy, which it's very good, it's very weird, you definitely need to be in a particular headspace for it because it's like you got to pay attention and be interpretive and critically think about it. Maybe don't listen to what we're going to say about it just in case we dig in a little too deep. Yeah, probably the next like two minutes will probably be like, okay, but yeah, I mean, we're probably, I really want to get into the interpretation. So we're probably going to have to uh, get in deep. But yeah, it ha- so it has, I'm trying to remember exactly how it begins. It's like one of the Jake Gyllenhaals you meet and he is, I'm trying to remember which one you meet first. It's, it's the professor. Yeah. So he's a disheveled sort of history professor and he's very you vibes. Yeah. Um, I mean, disturbingly, this is giving away more about myself, but he actually mentions the exact philosopher I specialize in, I know. uh, in my degree. So that was too much for me, too much. Yeah. So he's 
frustrated with his life, and it's this, you know the classic trope in literary fiction. He's does okay. I'm trying to remember. Does he have a wife that he's cheating on her with, or is it he's just having sex with a younger student? But he doesn't have another relationship no, he, going on. He has his relationship. Oh God, it's been so long since I watched it. One Jake Gyllenhaal has a wife. Yeah. The other Jake Gyllenhaal just has the girlfriend. Yeah. Who's his student or his TA. But it's like, but it's a younger student, power dynamics. Yeah. Yada, yada, yada. It's already problematic feeling. But as you get into the movie, you find out he is this, that he's, he, he encounters this other Jake Gyllenhaal with the same voice, who looks the same with some slight differences and is living a completely different life. And so the question is, what's going on? And it is such a surreal, very eyes wide shut kind of feeling journey of, because there's these all these interspersed clips about this weird sex club or something like this that might be a dreamscape, might be thinking about this idea of the key comes up, this idea of there's, there's imagery of the spider that's part of the club maybe, but part of other dreamscape bits that he's connecting to. And so it's this, yeah, it's, it's a psycho-surreal thriller, psychosexual surreal thriller. And the question is, what's going on? What is it that's happening to this character? And so this will definitely be spoiler territory from here on. But what did you think was going on? or how, And how did you like it? Um, so I, I did really enjoy it. I was very much in the headspace for it, I think, which is why mm-hmm. it worked really well for me. For me personally, it's about this quarter to midlife crisis identity crisis that this professor is having. And I think that's why he really is the central figure out of the two Jake Gyllenhaals. You see him more, he's established earlier. um, And the other one comes in to sort of disrupt the routine. And the routine is his basic sort of boring life. He's, you know, what an adjunct history professor, like, he has almost nobody in his taking his course. He's mostly alone, sleeps with a student. He's a total cliche um, and he wants change. He wants to reinvent himself and he's feeling left behind. And then you meet this other Jake Gyllenhaal that's, that's sort of this idealized version of what he could be because he is attractive. He is a good looking guy with a great voice, this other Jake is mid-level famous, has Mm -hmm. a decent amount of money, has this amazing downtown apartment, beautiful wife who he steps out on constantly. And it's, it's sort of about seeing if the grass really is greener on the other side. And he starts prodding. He starts picking at that scab to try and figure out, is he losing something? Did he miss something? Like, is there this other person that's stealing the life that he could have or should have had? So he tries to ingratiate himself and take that over. And then eventually realizes that a, he's, he's both still dissatisfied truly in the end and B it really was all just a fantasy. You can't, you can't have everything. You can't truly reinvent yourself without putting in the effort, putting in the work and recognizing the problems in your own life that you need to fix. That's, that's really where it hit home for me. And I think that's why the ending, even though it's so surreal, it's so atmospheric and weird, 
worked for me because he's finally about to settle into this new version of himself, fully take it over and absorb it as his own life. And then immediately it gets taken away by this unseen or super surreal force that he can't fight. And really to me, that's like, A, none of it was true. None of it was really real. You can't just absorb somebody else's life without putting any work into yourself at all. You can't make those pieces fit together in any realistic fashion. Mm-hmm. And and B, it, it just wasn't even real in the first place. You know, it wasn't an option for you in the first place. You have to, like, if you, if you want something in your life, you have to work for it. Yeah. I don't think the movie... So the interpretation I'm going to give, it it doesn't, these things don't line up like one for one ratios, but I think the central, this is my view, the central, and I actually it was, it was my mom and I talking about it after we watched it together and we were both really confused and really wanted some understanding of what was going on. We came up with the view that really what it's about is a guy in a midlife crisis. So his, you could say his real life, although the, both of them are his real life. So for, first thing, they're the same person. Both Jake Gyllenhaal's are the same person. And it's surreal in the sense that it's both him living out both lives, um, the inability to do so. And the, it, like the, a fantastical element to it. So, for example, you hear him talk to his mom about a food he uh, where she's like, oh, here's something. I think it was peas or something like this uh, that you love. And he's like, no, I don't love that. He has a kind of split in his mind that even his mother can't figure out like what this Jake Gyllenhaal is interested in or likes or whatever. And she says, you know, are you fantasizing again about your acting job instead of just sticking to his, your your dedicated history job, right? And so you can see, so both those sides are part of the, some kind of same person. So I was like, okay, that's that's a place, right? And if you think about the, the two women he's with as a cheating or marital situation, things come together even further where he maybe does have a wife, but in his certain mind, some fracture of his mind, he's the disheveled professor. It must be the professor that's having the affair because that's the only spot he could have found the affair with, right? But somehow his original or his self within the marriage or in the marriage plot is the one who is living out his dream of being this actor. And that dream in a way can't be real because he couldn't really be doing it but even in even in the the acting thing the marriage isn't a good marriage neither of them are happy yeah you know he doesn't want to be in it he's he's exploring his sexuality with these like sex dungeon parties he's cheating Mm -hmm. on his wife constantly he's trying to steal the professor versions of, of himself's girl like younger girlfriend yeah so like, and that's, that's what I'm saying with mine. It's the identity crisis. It's the, it is. Yep. it's the, what if I had made the other choice and gone in the other direction? Would I be happier? And the answer is ultimately no, because the problem lies within and not with the choices yeah. that you did or didn't make. The problem is himself. There's something fundamentally broken there that he's refusing to actually deal with or address. So he's just taking it out on everybody else and blaming them for the choices or paths he did or didn't take. I, yeah, I think all of these things are part of the thing. And I think it's explicitly meant or like it's, it's built so that no one interpretation, nothing fits perfectly so that you get the feelings of a fractured personality of uh, things. But I think it's pretty clear it's supposed to be one person's life in a, in a fracture. Yes. 
it, it it's just the question is, is it a fantasy or is it real or like what parts are real and what parts are fake? I think all of those are left up to interpretation. I also like the idea of considering it as something like a, a multiverse split timeline mm. thing where both these people are the same person, but they're existing in, in two like individualized universes that have accidentally collided and I kind of like that interpretation because of the weird spiders, the monsters that you see right. like over the cityscape, even though they don't really interact or cause any damage throughout the movie until you get to the very end. It does give that sort of fantastical sci-fi element where it could be like some kind of fracture in the timeline where he truly does get the opportunity to see what his life would have looked like if he'd made these other choices and if he would be any better of a person or any more self-satisfied. And truly, he's not, but he is more successful. And so the greed element comes into it. Mm-hmm. It's, 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 a, it's a really fascinating uh, movie, but... It's, it is harder to recommend on the enjoyment factor. I think as a structure of a movie, it is very complicated and not very fun to watch. Okay. So, you, you, you know, as you're saying, uh, it's, it's a mood piece. You got to know what you're sort of getting into. Yeah. But yeah. How about the Maze Runner rewatch? <laughs> um, did they even I mean, come out with the final movie of that trilogy? Yes, they did. Yeah. All three came out. Um, there was a three-year break between the second movie and the third movie because Dylan O'Brien got in a horrific accident on set while oh. filming the third movie, so it had to be delayed. Yeah, he was doing a stunt where he's supposed to... I can't remember if he's supposed to jump from one car to another or he's supposed to like fall off a vehicle, but the way he ended up falling off this stunt vehicle, it put him in the path of another stunt vehicle, so he got hit, on, hit head-on by a car. Wow. And it broke, like it it damaged the bones on the right half of his body. His face was like shattered on the right side. He had oh like God. a significant mm-hmm. amount of rehab um, before he could come back and finish the movie. It was brutal. But yeah, I mean, they're not great movies. But <laughs> I will say there were so many of these, you know, dystopian or apocalyptic YA fantasy sci-fi movies Um, that were based off book series that were coming out around that time. And Harry Potter not included, because obviously the most successful YA fantasy franchise turned movie. Maze Runner is really like the only one that worked super effectively outside of the Hunger Games. I mean, of course, the Hunger Games was amazingly popular. It was huge. But like Divergence sucked. The City of Bones movie was terrible. Mm -hmm. The Beautiful Creatures movie was terrible. But Maze Runner was solid. Like, it was genuinely fairly good, and it was very well cast. It had Dylan O'Brien, Caius Scotelario, um, and Thomas Brody Scott, who's in The Queen's Gambit. Mm, yes. Love him. Um, and it's it, like it's it's just genuinely solid. It's very interesting. It's aesthetically really cool. I loved the idea of the maze. It was very that first movie super super yeah. effective. I enjoyed the first movie. I didn't watch it further though. The first movie is super effective. I just heard such bad things about the later movies that I never picked them up. They're not terrible. The third one's rough. I will say like the death cure. I think is the third one. It's not yeah. great. Um, it's okay. The ending is actually pretty sad, but it's beyond that. It's it's not that interesting. Scorch Trials 
is is good. I enjoyed it. It's not as good as the original, like the first one, Maze Runner, but it is really good. The character dynamics are really interesting. It's pretty suspenseful. You get a lot of uh, Baelish, Peter Baelish from Game of Thrones. Mm. He's in it um, as like, uh, might be a good guy, might be a bad guy, which is always super fun. Yeah, rogue agent. The woman who played the mom in uh, Sharp Objects, also in all of those movies tremendous actress patricia something i can't remember her last name um but she's amazing she's really really good in this overall they're just very entertaining they're super effective they do a really good job at what they do they have just enough suspense and just enough action to make them really entertaining and engaging while still being pretty family friendly you know like i wouldn't show like a like a six-year-old this movie but you could probably rock a like 10 and up and it'll be an entertaining night nice and the monsters in the maze which i wish you saw more of they're only in the first movie in the actual maze runner they only exist in the maze they're fucking cool looking they're Mm -hmm. these weird half robot half organic spider things called grievers and they're genuinely upsetting to look at and super creepy. And when they're running through that maze being chased by these things, it's cool. Like it's a cool action yeah, I sequence. I think it holds up like the, the, the third movie, not great. I wouldn't recommend it, but the first two, the acting is solid. The writing is decent. The special effects are great and it's got very solid action and suspense. Like it's very entertaining and it's got eyebrows in it. You know, uh, Will Poulter from uh, We Are the Millers? Yep. Eyebrows. Yep. Very intense eyebrows. He was going to play Pennywise in the new It movies, and then it went to Bill Skarsgård. That makes sense. Right? You look at his face, and you're like, you should play a creepy clown. That's very on brand for just physically what you look like. I enjoyed the Divergent book, but I agree that the but the movie was not good. And I didn't even check out the later movies, which are apparently horrific. Like the first movie is coherent, even though it's not great. But I I actually enjoyed the book or yeah, the trilogy. Shalane Woodley again. Are we ready to uh, move on to the main, the main feature? Yeah, I think so. I think we can do that. Um, So, uh actually could you i didn't write down stuff about it okay so secretary came out in 2002 it's about a young woman recently released from a mental hospital uh she takes a typist course and gets hired as a secretary to a lawyer where their employer employee relationship turns into a psychosexual sadomasochistic one yep um and it stars james spader who we all know and love from multiple things like blacklist currently is what he's probably best known for he is also the absolute bastard character in uh pretty in pink if you want to go mad old school when james spader was a absolute fox Mm. um so gorgeous when he was young he was just a beautiful man Absolutely homely now. Uh, Maggie (laughs) Gyllenhaal, Jake Gyllenhaal's sister. Many people probably know her from that uh, shitty Dark Knight Rise or the Dark Knight movie where she played Rachel and took over for Katie Holmes. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But she's she's been in tons of stuff outside of that, including Donnie Darko with Jake Gyllenhaal. 
Yep. Jeremy Davis, who's a very well-known character actor from Saving Private Ryan, the George Clooney version of Solaris and Twister, which I still adore to this day. And then Stephen McHattie, a wonderful Canadian actor from Nova Scotia, uh, who's in Pontypool and played Elijah Wood's father in Come to Daddy. Woo, throwback. Woo! The movie is directed by episodes. The movie is directed by Steven Shainberg, who I have never heard of since this movie came out. Man, so Secretary, that was a viewing experience. Oh my god. Like, this is the epitome of the psychosexual drama. Like, it is the most intense feeling, discomforting, awkward, chaotic, and sexual movie. Yeah. So that was an experience. (laughs) It's my favorite thing that you said while we were watching the movie. It's like Fifty Shades of Grey if it wasn't sexy. And I think that's very Mm -hmm. accurate. I think there are elements of it that do feel sexy but in a way that makes you uncomfortable exactly where you're like yes this is hot and i might be into it but i also feel gross and really weird about it i think that stems from the fact that the show very quick like right from the beginning has this premise of maggie gyllenhaal's character self-harming and that her anxieties and her psychological interior has something going on here, which is then moved into this sexual sphere of coming out of her parents' house. And this is very prominent as a theme right from the beginning in that her room and going back to her parents' house is this expression of this almost, I wrote down like toxically like daughter syndrome, like, like not growing up. Just her room is the most just a grotesque version of a of a childhood bedroom but it's not even yeah. it's not even just the room she herself is aggressively infantilized in the beginning of yes. the movie she's like she has this baby doll voice she wears these baby doll colors she's got that purple poncho on at the very beginning that's like this super vibrant purple granted i absolutely loved it but it does give her an even more childlike vibe And then again, her bedroom, which is full of glitter and butterflies and purple wallpaper and big fluffy pillows. There's nothing about her that feels like an adult woman. And yet everyone in her life has an expectation that she acts like an adult woman, you know, that she should be having sex, that she should have boyfriends, that she, you know, should be working, that she should be able to support herself, that she should get married. All of these things, all of these pressures are being put on a character that they're also simultaneously infantilizing and treating like a baby doll. Exactly. I mean, I think that's the exact thing. And then tying that in with this deep and and scary level of self-harm you're seeing from the beginning. And what is it that what is she's going through? And, you know, I mentioned that this connects up to one of our favorite kinds. I mean, maybe it's not a good thing, but our favorite kinds of themes and premises, which is this middle class white suburban family fears and the the dream of the nuclear family falling apart and how in the inside, in the interior of it, it's this psychological mess of mm-hmm. people um, being getting drunk or being depressed or anxious or self-harming. All these things combined, right? And some of our favorites, including Donnie Darko, are within that theme, ghost world. I also like, and I think it's it's just connecting now for me, which is so ridiculous because it's blatantly obvious now that I think about it, that her, though in a lot of ways, I feel like her relationship with the lawyer, with James Spader, 
is is viewed through a lens of toxicity that their sadomasochism is something that should be hidden that it's something disturbing and gross you're seeing a mirror image of that with her mother and father where her father is this abusive alcoholic who hits the submissive quiet demure mother uh, when she gets out of line. Wow. Yeah. But he hits her in the face. He hits her without her consent and he hits her to be abusive and not in this reciprocal kind of relationship, which is what she ends up developing with James Spader's character, which is primarily about consent. And the minute he feels like he did something beyond the confines of their established relationship, he fires her or attempts to. Mm-hmm. Right. So you're seeing like, what truly is toxic about a masochistic or sadomasochistic relationship that is not, not consensual versus this real BDSM dynamic that's, you know, fully consented to by both parties. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting connection. And then the lens that society views it at, like society expects the mother to stay with the father, regardless of his abuse levels, to let him try to get his alcoholism under control, to let him back into the home. Whereas society views everything about her relationship, Maggie Gyllenhaal's relationship, as aberrant, as disgusting, as something to be ashamed of, um, that she should go a more linear and traditional route with the boring boyfriend that absolutely doesn't stimulate her sexually or emotionally. Yeah. And when you think about her position in the family dynamic and seeing that that might be her future, right? One of the ways, and this is, you know, people with anxiety know this, of course, is that often the methods of control you're looking for are to deal with uh, being able to deal with the, the exact thing you're fearing. So to be able to condition yourself against the thing. And so getting into a sadomasochistic relationship this is one of the difficulties with talking about this thing. I don't know that much about BDSM. And so I don't want to impose what is going on in those relationships and, and um, things like that. But I think I, for me, I have to admit that there's some element of it, which is a psychological care. I just, I don't think it's necessarily unhealthy though. I don't think it's necessarily like a bad thing. I just think that there's a, there's an attempt to play out certain anxieties in one's mind or certain, um, the opposite, like the ability to to de-stress or to loosen oneself from restrictions that one has felt since childhood. Mm-hmm. And so I think, yeah, the, the movie, well, it, it really dives into those themes and, and is unapologetic about it. It's very much like deeply within it. And I had very conflicted internal feelings, like so much of the movie from the awkwardness of it and the discomfort to the like, sexual tension to the to the release or feeling like Maggie is actually taking control or Maggie's character is taking control of her life even though there's something so disturbing about the methods in which she's getting there and I think so much of that comes from like the weird awkward tension between them when they speak to each other like James Spader and Maggie Gyllenhaal's characters there's something very disquieting and discomforting about the way that they speak to each other how demure she is how submissive she is to him that can feel awkward and uncomfortable if that's not something that you're used to or not something that you enjoy in your dynamic it can feel creepy and weird but then you look at a lot of the things that he does with her and like requirements of their dynamic their relationship together 
are surrounded by like her no longer self-harming, um, her being more assertive at work and being firmer on the phone and finding her true voice and being able to express her discomfort in situations, things that she was never able to effectively accomplish before because she felt so constrained by the role that she was placed in in her family, the role that she was placed in in the mental hospital where she was previously. So in a lot of ways, even if you aren't a fan of this type of relationship, even if you don't agree with this type of relationship, this relationship helped her develop new coping strategies and, you know, develop emotionally in ways that she hadn't effectively been able to do going through an inpatient therapy treatment center. Mm -hmm. The psychology of the movie too is, or the, the themes of psychology and even therapy and things like this are sort of prominent in that uh, right away. Actually, I think it's almost her first meeting with him. He actually, at some point in their conversation, lays down on the couch in the like typical like mm-hmm. Freudian couch manner. And so I think they're trying to signal something to you about that this is going to be a kind of therapeutic situation between the two. And later in the movie, um, this is more a David Lynchian type thing, but you see the red curtains and that that space of the Lynchian sur- psychosexual surreal space that's often in, like it's in blue velvet, but with blue curtains, velvet curtains in that case, the red curtains from Twin Peaks. The movie never actually goes surreal, but there is color symbolism. There's feelings of being in a different space. There is a, a dream sequence later on, but although I, 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 it wasn't great. Also wasn't, a dream sequence. It was more of a sexual fantasy. Oh, was I thought I thought it was uh, when they were dreaming, but no, the one I'm thinking of, she wasn't right. Yeah, 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 yeah. She was. Yeah, she was. It was sexual fantasy. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, s- similar surreal space as a dream sequence. Yeah, yeah, it wasn't great. Looked a lot like clip art, if I'm honest. Yeah, it was not a good part of the movie. I also, I thought the ending went a little long. Like the like the epilogues were a little much. Yeah, I agree. But but it has so it has a few like structural problems and stuff like that. But I think the first three quarters there is quite a powerful feeling. Like I I haven't seen a movie that evoked that exact feeling before uh, of do, this chaotic energy, uh, sexual tension. The one thing I do like about the ending, I agree that the epilogue went on very long, but the very end where you see them doing up their bedroom in the morning, like tidying things up. Mm-hmm. Um, she, he leaves the room. She puts the dead bug on the bed. She waves goodbye to him and gives the camera that knowing smile. That gives me the sense where she's really found her place in this relationship. Yes. And even though she is the submissive in this Dom sub relationship, she is the one who controls what happens and when. Right. You know, she she is the one who's in charge of the way their dynamic functions and she's the one who can stop at any time. And that I think is both true to form in a lot of BDSM relationships where it's an equal give and take of power with dominance and submissives, but ultimately the submissive at any time can say stop, can say enough, can egg it on, can push it further. You know, there are a lot of stuff like guards put in place to protect your consent in that type of relationship. And you can see how she's 
found how that role works and gives her power. And I think that's mm-hmm. really cool for, for a character that's originally shown as so childlike, so afraid, um, and so lost. Yeah, exactly. I, I think that's what's going on as well. I mean, I do agree with you that the use of, of color and imagery is very on brand for Lynch and also gives like the same kind of vibes that Giallo films give where they utilize yes. yep. color to create atmosphere or evoke specific emotions. I mean, the one thing I will say is that they did a very good job with the cinematography to A, I mean, it's definitely cohesive with Lynch. You can see that there's a lot of influence there, even though it doesn't go surreal in the way that like Twin Peaks would. But also in the cinematography, he really placed it without directly saying this was late 80s, early 90s. Right. The cinematography, ignoring set design completely, the cinematography alone places it in 1989, 1990, 1991, very effectively. Mm-hmm. And, well, there's this sense in which, so the movie comes out 2002, and so it might be that that exact era is an attempt at connecting that nos- that that false nostalgia or infantilization into the movie's production itself. That if you're going back to that particular childhood, which coincidentally for us is our childhood as well, or like just a little bit earlier, uh, but that that '90s vibe, I I can definitely sense some of. Although ours is more yeah with the internet and stuff like this is yeah. more prominent. Well, I think also, I mean, setting it in the 80s, 90s era makes a lot of sense just because the homemaker thing was still very common. There were still a lot of issues with women's rights in the workplace. uh, And there was still a lot of, I wouldn't say stigma around being a a secretary, an executive assistant, whatever. It's it's not so much that there was stigma, but there was a lot of abuse that was found in that role when you worked for like high powered men and you were their secretary. There was sort of an expectation and you see it a lot in media that there would be sexual favors traded in that position or because they held the position of power over you, you couldn't say no to being sexualized in the workplace. And I think it's interesting portraying that dynamic in a time period where that kind of sexual harassment was so problematic and common. And yet nothing that you see in their relationship would really be quantified as sexual harassment except for the fact that he's the employer and she's the employee, but everything is consented to everything is wanted and enjoyed. And the minute that he thinks he crossed the line, you know, he, he tries to end things on good terms, give her good references, give her more money than she was due financially based on her salary. All of these things that are like, Oh, I, I took advantage of this person. I fucked up. So I think that's, it makes it more effective than setting it in 2002 when even though these things were still common, they still happened. It wasn't as hidden anymore. Mm -hmm. People were starting to talk about it more. People were starting to stand up against it more. I think it it works better. Yeah. Yeah. And and my point just being that due to the time gap too, as, as a viewer, you're getting this sense of the disconnection of time. The, yeah. the like the, her own age and her um, infantilization and the need to move on to the next stage of her life, but not knowing how. No, I mean, I think it's not a perfect movie, you know, like there there's definitely some awkward stilted pieces that aren't intentionally awkward. Um, but overall, I really, really enjoyed it. 
Um, mm-hmm. It's definitely not as like sexy as Fifty Shades of Grey. No. But I do think it portrays that type of relationship. It's more interesting in a way. Yeah. In a much more interesting and a much more, you know, kind way. Mm-hmm. Um, so like if, if that's, if that's something you're interested in, or if you just, you know, want something that's like a weird psychosexual movie with really interesting characters, I think it's great. I think, I think you'd probably like it. If you like things like Twin Peaks and Virgin Suicides, I think you'd probably love this yeah. movie. It is interesting how well it slots into this early 2000s thing of so many, uh, Donnie Darko, Ghost World, I mean, not to think, but American Beauty, but they all have this this vibe, which I think was a vibe for that era and has not really come back and was not quite there before uh, that era. So yeah. it, it, it's, it, it slots into that and it and has its own place in that sort of uh, set. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Also, weird fact, the James Spader character, who is the dominant in the relationship, his first name is Edward. His last mm. name is Gray. And I really, I know that Fifty Shades of Gray is a ripoff of Twilight, but I truly feel like Fifty Shades of Gray just ripped off Secretary and made it worse. Yeah, and I wonder if the Edward influenced Edward Cullen in yeah. Twilight too. So it's, it's a very fascinating, yeah, connection there. But that's about all I have to say. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think I'm good. I really enjoyed it overall. Yeah, it's it's for, for this kind of indie movie vibe, and if you're interested in what like what we've had to say about it check it out some cool outfits too yes oh or if you like masters of sex with michael sheen and lizzie kaplan Mm. you will love this movie guaranteed um thank you for listening you can find us on twitter at fans lab pod uh we're also on instagram uh at fans labyrinth pod and just look up Fans Lab on any social media and we're there. You'll find us. Let us know what you'd like to see in or here in the future, what you'd like us to watch, what you think of our opinions. If you think we're stupid, please tell us. We just want your interaction. <laughs> <laughs> True. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.